right, all right. So we are continuing our delve into Isaiah. Deep delve. Deep delve. And actually, it's not crazy deep. We're, we're like going pretty fast, but you kind of have to. Otherwise, you spend uh, three years in Isaiah. Here's what we did. We, we head first dove into the ocean that is Isaiah, but we found out that it's like extremely salty. Mm. Like that one. Yeah, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea that you talk about, yes. And we, we, we thought we were going to dive head first into it, but just our fingertips are actually in it. We're moving very slowly <laughs> to get through it. It's very salty. Very, very salty. We're in quicksand? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, we dove into an ocean of quicksand. Yeah, yeah basically. Fun. Um, but this week we're going to try to tackle Isaiah 28 through, I think, 39. Is Correct. that what we said? Yep. Cool. Um, it's kind of this next section. So maybe let's talk quick about the section um what what kind of like links it together as a section there's kind of like a narrative flow i feel like in this section um so yeah like let's maybe just give like a high level um overview plot line sort of thing i would like to do this i always like doing this and then chris i'll let you follow me Uh, uh, this chunk mirrored kind of the previous chunks before it. So there was a lot of a message to fill in the blank. And that's like Israel, Judah, the nations. Then there's also a section of like hope after that doom and gloom, as I've been calling it. And then also there's kind of a unique section in uh, this chunk right at the end, which is very narrative. It like tells the story of King Hezekiah. It's, it's not necessarily, it, it's, it's very much like Kings, which also tells the story of King Hezekiah when I like search. Yeah, Hezekiah. it's basically the exact same story. Yes, yeah. and so that that's a little different as far as what I saw. But the rest of it, especially like how um, my Bible app gives me the titles as well. It, it it the beginning of it mirrored that that same kind of flow. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think uh, I, you know this is one of the one of the cases that I think the titles of the chapters do a great service to the chapters. Um, you see at least. From what mine was, it was like, woe to X, woe to Y, woe to Z. And then um, starts showing you, if you start reading, the, you know, hope and deliverance and redemption parts. And then, yeah, the the narrative stuff is always my favorite in the Bible. Um, Maybe because it seems just, uh, it's easy to read and it's obvious and I just love narrative. But um, it is kind of strange here. And I I think we see that in a lot of... uh, not a lot of, but we were talking about Samuel earlier this week and how there's prophecy mixed with narrative. And um, it, it, it does seem like that is a technique used by the writer sometimes. And I always like that break when they throw either poems or narrative in with the prophecy. It helps me kind of, I don't know, ground myself. Oh, so, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, Hezekiah is just the man. He's super cool, um, which is great. You don't hear a lot of good kings, so anytime you see one in the Bible, you, you better pay attention to it. Yeah, he is a good guy, which I appreciate. And also, to your point, the narrative is refreshing to me. Like, prophecy, um, generation listing, uh, songs that go on forever in the Bible, those are very dry and hard for me to read for like 50 chapters. And so this, as strange as it may seem, uh, like if I were putting putting together this scroll, as a reader, it is kind of nice to be like, oh, sweet, like a story about a guy, a lot of direct information. It's, it's nice. Yeah. 
It seems like most of this section, too, is focusing on Israel and Judah, mm-hmm. um, which I, I thought maybe be worth just mentioning a brief history of, like, why there's Israel being contacted and Judah being contacted separately. There's a north-south thing, isn't there? Yes, yeah. So there, there was a civil war um, that Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, had. And as far as I believe I'm correct that there are, Ten tribes that are make up Israel, and then two that make up Judah. Um, and historically, so then they they set up their own kingdoms, and um, basically there are almost no good, faithful, righteous kings that ever crop up in Israel, um, and only like two or three that crop up in Judah. Hezekiah being one of them, but of course, then at the end we see that. Hezekiah is like great, but then he turns to Babylon too and trusts them in the last moment. And you're just like, what the heck is up with that? Um, but I think it's good to to note because last time we talked about how it was like the first section was talking about the impending Assyrian attack, and then the next section was Babylonian, and then now we're back to Assyria. So you're like, wait. What what just happened? Did, did Assyria not die? Are they fine? And I think it's like, actually, oh, no. Earlier, we were mostly addressing the kingdom of Israel, and now we're mostly addressing the kingdom of Judah. Not that Israel isn't mentioned in this section at all, because they are mentioned some, but it, the main focus is on what's going to happen with Judah, the southern kingdom, which is mostly what people consider like the the more important, if I want to say that, that's probably a bad thing to say, but mostly because it contains Jerusalem. So Judah has Jerusalem, so people see that as kind of like the true Israel, so to speak, which is funny because it's called Judah and not Israel, but that's right. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with all that. Um, It is good to know that the nation is divided and, um, you know, it it's a lot of other it, civil war is the perfect way to put it. I mean, it's just, it's people that are related that are divided because of war. And you see that if you, if you pay attention to that division in the old Testament and you notice people come from Judah or Israel, you'll, you'll see some interaction between the two. That's really important to notice. And yeah, it's good. Yeah. So that's kind of a high level overview, basically starting in, in 28, it seems like, um, Isaiah is addressing the fact that just like Israel did, Judah is giving their allegiance to Egypt and to other powers to try and protect them from Assyria. And, and so it kind of starts out with Isaiah addressing that fact and being like, hey, you're giving your allegiance to Egypt, and that doesn't make sense because they're just people like you're giving your allegiance to another nation like don't you remember how great god is what he's done for you that he overthrew the um you know egyptian oppressors but you still you're gonna give your hope to them and then he kind of like logically plays out what will happen um if if they do continue to do that and then we jump to hezekiah who doesn't do that and is is faithful to god who goes to god first in the midst of this Assyrian threat. And what we see happen there is that God actually does deliver them from the Assyrians. But then, as we mentioned before, 
Babylon shows up onto the scene. Hezekiah's like just does like a total one eighty. You're like, what happened? Um, and then that kind of jumps us into the next section. But to me, as like a plot narrative of this whole section, I would say like Isaiah addressing what would happen if you put your hope in Egypt and like the the bad stuff that's going to happen if you do that. And then Hezekiah showing what happens if you put your faith in God. And that would be like a, a big arc mm-hmm. of this section. Yeah, I like it. I like the theme. Yeah. So maybe now that we kind of feel like we got a, a big arc, let's dive into some of the specifics. What are the things that stuck out to you felt like big moments in this section? Well, so... I almost feel like for this section, we should start at the beginning and, and truck through it nice and quickly. And, um, you know, the first, I, I cut it into three sections, first being like a message about these places. And similar to your comment from um, the last time we spoke, Hayden, I noticed some plays on words uh, between these sections as he was like addressing certain places. So this first section, Isaiah 28, I have it marked as a message about Samaria and, like, the first thing I noticed is that he's, he's just railing about the drunks of Israel, the drunks of Israel, talking about wine, using metaphors about, like, you're staggering around because you're drunk. So I don't know if there was some context there because that's the first time that's really popped out to me as far as – so I know that you mentioned, like, the fast ships and, like, him addressing certain places. What's up with him just railing on some area about the drunks of Israel? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know about context there. My my guess would be that this is something that they're known for, um, <laughs> that it's an obvious thing, and maybe something that they're um, prideful of even. You know, maybe they have choice wine and they have amazing vineyards, um, and maybe they're very proud of that and they feel like that makes them special, would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah, I that that's I I heard at least one person say that that is like a literal reference essentially that that is kind of what the elite of Israel are spending their time doing is yeah. drinking a lot and getting drunk which like would be a show of um like total confidence in your situation, right? You know, if you are just totally fine getting drunk all the time you a feel like you have an excess of grapes and wine so you're feeling bountiful in what you have and and yeah b you have no defense set up because yeah yeah. so you feel super safe so you feel totally comfortable in your situation you feel like you have an excess that you could just partake of all the time and yeah there's there's nothing that's out to harm you in that. So I think that that is kind of the underlying um, thing that's being addressed when Isaiah throws this out here is be like, you think you have it all. You think you have so much that nothing can threaten your lifestyle, but that's not true. Yeah. And I, I just like it. And I also noticed in the next one or two chapters, he uses this in a different way, but Isaiah is writing, he's not only like lambasting them for their drunkenness, but then he's also saying like, the Lord will like drown you with the flood. And like he uses it metaphorically in so many different ways in the first half anyways. I feel like in the second half of 28, it's more so like high level. And and once again, like the Lord directly speaking to that people and it's not very good. Yeah. But I, I love that. I love that. I love that poetry and I love how he's addressing that certain people. And then it even gets worse, like not to jump ahead, but... When he when he addresses, I 
Yeah, it is. It is next in Isaiah 29. When he addresses Jerusalem, he's like, you're even worse. You're stupid, but it's not even from the wine, dude. You're like, and, and it's like, oh, wow, dude, that's even more harsh. Like he was just railing Samaria because they're drunks. And it's like, you know, I, I really like I really like that. Uh, you know, it, it makes it worse. It makes it makes his message that much, much worse for Jerusalem. I, I agree with you. The first time I read this, I just couldn't get my head out of like the why is there so much like alcohol metaphor. And I think I think Hayden made a really good point that when you're drunk and when you're consumed with like the luxuries of life, you're not ready for war. So they're not preparing themselves. They're not ready for any of this. And they they're kind of just turning a blind eye to like a real threat. And instead of calling to God from help for help, they're just like getting lost in their own lives. Yeah, the the theme of war should not be lost in this too, because it's the Lord of Heaven's Heaven's armies. Like every all the doom and gloom, like I kind of glaze over it when I call it that, but it's it is like the dashing of heads against the ground and the Lord coming in and killing the people. So yeah, that's yeah. There, there's all these I shouldn't call them ancient, but certainly like historic context clues that we would not. I when I when I enjoy a glass of choice wine. As <laughs> I keep listening to our, our previous episodes, choice one, I, I certainly am not thinking about war or my safety, you know, <laughs> and that's something to, something to right. understand. It, well, yeah, I mean, typically good wine is reserved for celebration and these people have nothing to celebrate. Yeah. Nothing to truly be proud of. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that, um, this section has a lot for us to identify with in our current culture. Um, so yeah, it was something that was definitely hitting me where I was like, man, if anyone that he's addressed so far sounds like the United States in my culture at the time, it's like definitely this one where like there's war going on in the world, but we're just like, we got it all here. We're fine. We're just going to keep living it up, being happy. That's a crazy thing that you just mentioned as well, because I felt that reading the section and perfect segue, scroll down to Isaiah 29, 13, and he talks about how the people that are worshiping him are doing it with nothing but, my translation says, man-made rules learned by rote. And I love that. I love how Isaiah calls that out because I feel like, and honestly, a lot of it's good, but I feel like a lot of the systemic nature of Sunday church or like whatever it's going to be, and a lot of it leads to good things. Once again, I think it's better than a lot of different you know constructions of the big C church or whatever you want to call it. But I feel like a lot of it is just going through the motions of like, okay, we get there and we do this and we do that and we sing the songs and we go home. And that can lead to just mundane, like I said, going through the motions. And obviously, this is where Isaiah is pulling that out and being like, you know what's worse than staggering around and being proud and being drunk all the time is you worshiping me and not meaning it. <laughs> it's like, boom, that gives me the shivers. Yeah, complacency. I think and that that's kind of what he was talking about before too. It's your, I don't know, you're, you're asleep at the wheel. Like you have, you have all these things I've given you. I've proven myself faithful to you. And I've proven that if you rely on me, you know, I'll make your path straight. It, you know, whatever. It, these people have a long history with God. And uh, like you said, when we get complacent is when things start to go really bad. Yeah. And I think like being drunk or, you know, having great ships um, that you put your pride in is one thing because that it's like silly, you know, when you really think about it, like, man, you're really going to put all of your 
identity and your sense of worth in like these wooden things that you made that like get tossed by the seas and you know can get thrown overboard that really doesn't make sense but then when it comes to like worshiping god and saying you're doing it but really you're you're just doing it for your own sense of righteousness or whatever like i feel like that is a higher thing because you're representing or you're saying that you are representing Yahweh, you're representing God. So then for that to ultimately be like a false sense of what you're projecting into the world is really bad for God because you're saying this is what God is, this is who he is, this is what he's about. And then people are looking at that and they're like, that that's God? Okay, well, I'll find a different one. Yeah, yeah. I, I also like a lot of almost like warnings in the Bible of following whatever it's, whether you call it Christianity Christianity or, or whatever you want to call it, following its teachings. Um, one of them is like the very explicit descriptions. And like, if you look at history, um, how, uh, like the descriptions of how people end up when they do follow Jesus, they all die in pretty like terrible ways. You know, being a martyr is not rare when like you're doing the things that these teachings really describe. But this is also a very important warning as well, which is like, okay, if you're, if you're really going to call yourself whatever, if you're really going to say you're a follower of God, Yahweh, Jesus, whatever, um, and, you, and you, you don't actually believe it, or you're only doing it 95% of the time, or whatever you want to call it, God really doesn't like that. And then I just highlighted again, this is kind of leading us perfectly through 29, uh, 16, he talks about people saying like, oh, like, God can't see me doing this right now. And he, I feel like this metaphor is used other places in the Bible. He's like, did the, did the potter make the jar into the jar ever say to the potter, the potter who made me is stupid. And it's like, I know that I've read that in the Bible other places if I were to search that particular metaphor. And that is the perfect metaphor because it's like, God really doesn't like you saying that you believe in him. And then you go behind a closed door that he can see everywhere into and you're like, oh, I, I just didn't mean that, or I made a joke, or whatever. And he's like, ooh, I really don't like that. Uh, you know, I'd rather you put your faith in ships, or, or, or money, or sex, or drugs, or fill in the blank, or whatever our context is. He's like, don't, don't not mean it. That's yeah. I don't know why I'm railing on that point, but I, <laughs> like, it hits me really hard. It scares me, dude. It, like that stuff scares me when I read it in the Bible. I love how like putting this in context of Jesus' teachings, like how just much this screams Jesus to me compared to like a lot of other teachings in the Old Testament. It just seems like this is exactly what so much of the message of Jesus was. You know, if you claim to follow God, you have to do these things. You have to love your neighbor. You have to not just follow the law, but actually live a, a different life. And I do, this is just so, I mean... There's a reason, you know, they, Isaiah was such an important part of Jesus' ministry. This is just so Jesus. Yeah, it's very Jesus. I feel like, yeah, I, I, had, a, I had a line prepared for this. It's very funny to me. <laughs> uh, so I've I read, I read a lot of the prophets, and Isaiah is similar to a lot of the prophets. But I feel like Isaiah is like, if you've read the Harry Potter series, he's like Professor Trelawney. So most of the time he's like, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. Like what I've been calling doom and gloom. But like every six chapters he's like there will be one that will come again and he will be born of a virgin and you're like whoa what is happening and it's like totally on point and then he's like you're terrible and i hate you and you're gonna die and then all of a sudden he 
there's some of this even in like I'm looking at Isaiah 30 now. It's almost like revelation-y with like his prophetic metaphors and stuff. So yeah, this this book is very cool. I think this book is very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really funny analogy because that is kind of how it feels sometimes where you're like, okay, I'm tracking with like your message and then like something gets thrown in there about like a messianic king is going to come and you're like, that Finger? seems so strange. And I was listening to um, a pastor um, preach on this. I-, I like the way that he talked about it. Chris, going to what you're saying, how... Jesus is so steeped in Isaiah, like a lot of what he's talking about is Isaiah, um, and his disciples seem so confused about what's happening, which I think is is good for us to know because they would have known Isaiah pretty well. So for them to be confused is not to say like they don't understand or they don't know what Jesus is talking about, but like the way this pastor said it, it's like, they had a bunch of dots from Isaiah and they like connected them in a way that made a picture. And they were like, ah, oh, yes, this is what Isaiah is talking about. And then Jesus like came in with a big old eraser, erased their picture and then connected the dots in a different way. And they were like, we don't understand yeah. what you're trying to yes. say here. Yeah, we have not been paying attention to that version from, you know, we'll give birth part because that part was random to us at the time. It made no sense. It was like, that was literally me. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why Jesus was so controversial too because like he came in and, you know, rearranged these things that people had decided were the way the Bible had to be interpreted. And if you interpreted this differently, you're not just a threat. You're, you're a threat to an entire religion and a way of life and the way I believe um, my own religion. And I like that doesn't stop obviously with Jesus. Like there are wars fought over baptism and people died for that. But I just, it's so uh, interesting that like I I, it was one of the things that um, we were calling out where, you know, it's basically like you put it in Isaiah. We, we called, we called this out, but you put um, your faith in, the laws you've created not in what they were created for and yeah that's just that's powerful especially today i mean definitely back then definitely during jesus time but still relevant now well and something that hasn't changed is we are creatures of habit and that is a good thing like that can lead us to like self-improvement that can lead us to like us as a group you know once again like sunday morning I very rarely do I feel as inspired as I do like coming out of Sunday morning. I'm just like, holy cow, that was awesome sometimes. But those rituals can also like easily make us lose sight of what the actual point is. And Isaiah, for sure. Yeah. Once again, he's he's not down with that. He's not down with that in, in his context. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because we we're just so selfish, like we're so self-centered. Mm-hmm. So like when we when we go into a Sunday and then you leave and you're feeling inspired, you're feeling good, like that becomes the thing then that you're looking for on yeah. a Sunday morning is you're, you're like, you know, the, the first few times you're like, man, awesome. God is great. Like he's doing some awesome things. I feel awesome about what God's doing. And you're like, I feel awesome. And then you like come to the next Sunday and you're like, I, I didn't feel so awesome about And you're disappointed. And you're yeah. disappointed, yeah. You're like, I want that feeling of feeling awesome. And then all of a sudden, church is about feeling awesome. Yes. Which, and it's not about yeah. paying attention to what the point is, which is God and Jesus and whatever it is you're talking about that particular day. Yeah. 
Yeah. And once again, for me, playing music, dude, that's so easy. It's so easy to get caught up in like, oh man, I hope I hit this note and this performance is good. And then I sit down, I'm like, ha, saying the song. It's like, I can chill now. And it's like, no, it's actually the time. I'm like, you should probably be paying the most attention, you know? Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And I think like maybe continuing to go with like what we were talking about before, there's even that underlying thing in like the drunkenness and the wine and, and things like that, because you know, God handed them into this promised land. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically, one thing I really like about um, Deuteronomy and, and Joshua in that area is he's like, I'm going to give you cities and vineyards that you didn't work for, that you didn't build. And, and so it's just like, Israel goes in there and they like did nothing to earn these vineyards. They literally just like walk in and follow God. They didn't plant the gardens. They didn't build the cities. They just take over the stuff that was already there. And now they're like partying up, getting drunk on wine because like it's the feeling of being awesome and being taken care of that they love instead of realizing like this is God has given us this stuff, you know, it's but and that does feel good. Like, it feels great to get stuff from God. Yeah. But then you're confusing, like, the direction of the importance of that. You know? my, my big thing, and then my big thing lately is everything should be a means to an end. And you know what that end should be? It should be God. And, like, my means to an end, like, my means might be, like, uh, money. It might be the car. It might be the house or whatever. But, like, those are not important things at all. They certainly helped me, like, raise my daughter, which is, like, another important end, which, like, she can't be the end. God has to be the end, which I struggle with. But, like, the, the, everything that you're doing is just a means to, as we're reading here, worshiping and praising God. And to keep that in perspective is very difficult. Very difficult to do. But that's what, like, I've been trying to repeat. And that's a, <coughs> that's a nice message to take away from this. Yeah. I like that, you know, we're, we're given all these tools by God that are gifts, but when we start worshiping the tools, like, we completely miss the point of having the tool in the first place. Yeah, which is exactly what Paul picks up in Romans. Like, that's where he starts. Um, and, yeah. mm-hmm. He's a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty smart guy. Um, probably was reading Isaiah also. Um, one thing that I... So it, there's kind of like, it seems like a transition moment going into Isaiah 32, Um if you have some things in the between like 30, 31, that's fine. Um, but it's very, all of a sudden, yeah, that professor Trelawney <laughs> moment, yeah. Um, yeah, dude. like, look, a righteous King is coming and honest princes will rule under him. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a parched land. Yeah, and let me be the person who's like, this is what Jesus said. It's like the next two lines are like, let he who has eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm like, I highlighted that because I'm like, Jesus! And then, yes, this is a this is an Isaiah Professor Trelawney moment that if Jesus was talking to even his disciples and he was like, yo, this talks to me, I bet they were like, all I got from Isaiah was a lot of doom and gloom, man. Is that like we probably shouldn't be partying so much? You know, I, you got that from it? And he's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then he quotes it. And, and yeah, it's hard to understand at the time. But when you're reading this, it's. Awesome. Yeah. And in the next section, like he's talking about Hezekiah, who I'm not skipping yet, but he's talking about Hezekiah, who could be this righteous king. But then you're like, well, it doesn't make a ton of sense then what he says about honest princes, because then that. That doesn't happen. So, like, that that's the weird thing about this is, like, he definitely could be talking about how, how Hezekiah is righteous and has faith in God. 
But then I, I guess I don't know where he'd be going from there. Well, with you the could rest of this. you could say the same thing about how the messianic language in the Bible is pointing towards David, but then David blows at the end too, yeah. as does everyone. So, yeah, I think we talked about this last time too. But I think sometimes this language has dual purposes, and yeah, I think we we're supposed to think it's Hezekiah, but we're also supposed to be able to see the next step of that um only i mean you need a jesus to explain it to you normally but um (laughs) it does both yeah yeah i think that's a good point like you know if you're reading this um as a jew at the time or like just reading it for the first time and you're waiting for this promised king and then you get to hezekiah you're probably like oh this is the guy this is the guy and then it's not the guy and you know i think that's that's a consistent theme um, that's good. But what, one other thing that I really liked about 32 is if we are to say, well, actually, ultimately, this is Jesus, um, who's the righteous king that's coming. Man, I think we, we, we were talking about this. Uh, I don't remember when we were talking about this, but like what, you know, Christians often call themselves saved or, or believers or whatever, yeah. um, which, which is fine. That's true. But like, it, it almost seems like exclusive, um, like, hey, we're the saved ones, we're the ones who believe. What if this was the description of a Christian, you know? An honest prince will rule under him, um, honest princes, and each one will be like a shelter from the wind, like a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, shadows of a great rock in a parched land. I'm like, dude, that is how I would love to be described as a person. And you know? saved, like I, I remember us talking about that, saved the phrase is not only exclusive, but it's also like finite. It's like, oh, I've been saved. I'm not going to be in danger again. And like it, that, like to put it another way, it should be about the journey, not the destination. And even here, it should be about not like that you've been saved or like you, you can be saved. It's like the, you need to go save others. Like you need to, your life needs to be a demonstration of the fact that uh, he, God is the savior. You know, like it, it is a reorienting of, of that. And once again, yeah, that we we should if we shouldn't that shouldn't be a thing. I don't think if 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 I call myself a Christian, not that I think that that even should be a label, but that's another story. But like, if I call myself a Christian, I shouldn't be like, oh yeah, I got saved when I was like two years old when I like said the prayer and I was good to go. It's like I I don't think that that should be a thing. I think that that makes more people feel excluded and like have a different idea of what saving and the fact that we can be saved actually is. Yeah, I, I think I, I felt, I agree. I felt this way a while about church and, you know, and it on all the churches I've been in and the ones I've been a pastor and I've always felt like people miss the point. It, the point isn't to be saved from eternity. It, it's to have a relationship with God and relationship with Jesus. So the whole point of you meeting Jesus is to have a relationship with him. Like, yes, like that means after death as well. Like that, that's awesome. But that starts now. Like you don't need to wait for death to, to live, you know, and people, people go to church for that reason. They go to just secure their eternity. That's the only reason they're there. But really, like, if you know Jesus, you should want other people to know Jesus because who Jesus is, how he impacts our life should change us so dramatically that every opportunity we get to share that with people, like through the way we live, how we love all of that, we should take that to share with other people. It's not about being saved it's about introducing people to jesus yeah and i think that like as i was thinking about this specific verse in section like 
then remembering how important Isaiah is to Jesus and like how much Jesus is bringing up Isaiah, calling back to it um, and in putting himself in that place is really important because, yeah, like like we were saying, like Jesus is he, he can and has historically been seen as like the the savior in a sense that like he will take people from hell and put them in heaven like that's <laughs> that's kind of like his main or thing or divert you divert mm-hmm. you from hell to make sure you go to heaven right exactly and and like is that part of it like i think so something, but something like that maybe? yeah something along those lines but when when you remember that like isaiah is so important to jesus that he's always bringing it up and then you get to a place like this in Isaiah, I think it should challenge you to say, like, this is what Jesus was talking about. So this is probably, like, it's not just all about right belief to get to another place. Like, there's actually behavioral or, like, lifestyle stuff that Jesus desires from his people. And, like, that, it's something that, um, yeah, it, it's, like... It's surprising to me how often I'm surprised by people who think like just believing the right things about Jesus is the most important thing. And and I think that is important because your beliefs like translate into lifestyle, but like there there's this weird sense where you can like believe all the right things but not act differently because of those beliefs, but because you believe them you are going to heaven when you die. And I just think Isaiah challenges that picture of Christianity so much. Yeah, I'm glad we're all a little bit disturbed reading this section too because yeah. it, like, it, it did kind of shake me reading it being like, ooh, like, <laughs> am, I, am I ever the, the, what is it, the pot being like, oh, the potter doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, dude, all the time. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, this... I don't know if this is a problem in other parts of the world, but it's definitely something we've been taught. I don't know that this is like, I'd point to Christians and be like, this is your fault. Um, I think they're partially to blame, but this is something that the church has taught, you know, for the past 60 years. The most important thing is that conversion. And yeah, like the most important thing is from realizing life without Jesus is meaningless to realizing that, you know, you need Jesus. Like that, that is the most important thing, but that doesn't just, it doesn't stop there. I think that's our biggest problem is we go, okay, we're done. We checked off the check mark. Like now I'm just going to go to church and praise him. But, you know, I can just live my life now. And that's just, that's not, that's not what it's supposed to do. Well, and, and to bring us back to the metaphor of diving headfirst into quicksand, um, it's, it's not a one-time thing and it's a very long-term thing. It's, in fact, it's a permanent thing, <laughs> well, you know, and yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not instantaneous. Yeah, so um, maybe continuing on through these last few chapters, uh, you know, at the end we get to Hezekiah and that story. But anything, anything that was kind of sticking out before we jump into the actual Hezekiah narrative and, and turn the corner there? Um, you know, for, for me, 32, very, you know, like Jesus jumped out of me a lot. Um, in 33 and uh, 34... Once again, my headers, not to like lean on those too heavily, but I really do as like a first-time reader. A message about Assyria, where it seems like Assyrians were like very, very proud warriors and like believed in their armies. 
Um, and the metaphor there that Isaiah uses against them uh, kind of mirrors that. Um, and then there's also a message for the nations, which kind of, we, I think there was also like a message for the nations previous in Isaiah where like he addresses the known world after he's like called out these places in Israel. And then once again, doom and gloom, Isaiah 35 is hope for restoration. So I got those are the sections that I saw. Um, there weren't a lot of things that jumped out at me in those sections other than what I just mentioned. Um, I do want to talk about Hezekiah quite a bit. Uh, I've, got, I've got one really quick. Uh, I might be the most uh, metal line in all of the Bible. Uh, 34 or 5. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like the imagery in 34 is insane. Uh, it descends judgment upon Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from kidneys of rams. Oh, man. It's just, I mean, it's poetry and it's beautiful, but it's just super intense. And I don't know. It sticks out to me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I also noticed 34, um, verse 4. The heavens above will melt away, disappear like a rolled up scroll. The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine uh, or shriveled figs from a fig tree. I I think this for me is Isaiah um, reminding us that this isn't just like earthly retribution of bad people, but that there is um, spiritual heavenly stuff. You know, why is he all of a sudden bringing up the heavens? Um, I think, I think it's because there's heavenly realities that are being addressed here as well. Yeah. He he gets very supernatural in a number of places. Um, I said this before and I'll say it again. He gets a little revelation-y. Um, back in 30, not that we need to go back there, but he talks about the moon will be as bright as the sun and the sun will be seven times brighter, the light of seven days in one. And I'm like, well, that sounds like crazy revelation stuff. And then he also talks about like, there will be no more crying, like no more weeping, you know, there will be weeping and sorrow. Like I I feel like John when writing revelation is also pulling pretty heavily from this as well with his imagery in a couple of places. Um, but definitely, um, in, uh, 34, 34, not only is it extremely violent, I, that this also kind of like reminds me of um, multiple parts of Revelation. I think you're absolutely right. I think this is, especially 34, is apocalyptic. And I, yeah, it's intense and it's supposed to be. But yeah, it is interesting how it rolls over into 36, which is a story. Yeah, so weird. So weird. Once again, doom and, and like, I could even take the weirdness in 34 with like the, oh, nice little bow on it, hope for restoration. Once again, it'll be great. We're going to be singing, sorrow and mourning will disappear, hooray. And then it's like, there was a king on the 14th. <laughs> what? Where are we now, dude? Where are we now? This, is, this has been the crazy roller coaster of different narrative and, you know, like prose and poetry types I've ever been on. I think, it, I think it's genius, though. And I, I don't even say that just because I know, you know, it's you know, inspired by God's word, but, or inspired by God. But I think this kind of writing is so smart and intelligent because if this was just 50 chapters that was um, all prophecy, I would have checked out a long time ago in these five chapters. And if it was 50 chapters that was all narrative, like some parts of the Bible are, it's easy for me to just check out. And I, I don't know, this is like, now I'm like excited. Like, oh, like we're talking about a king after all of that. Like, what are you, you going to tell me? Yeah, the other thing that's cool to note, too, that I don't think that I've called out yet in my mind, is that we've talked about two different points of view. We have our point of view, which we should be grateful for, knowing that Jesus lived and died 
all of his story, all of these things that point to him. That's our point of view. There's a second point of view, which is like, okay, back in the day when this scroll was tossed around, it was like the best-selling novel of the time. How did people see it? What was their context? What was their point of view? But there's also a third point of view. is like me in the crowd listening to Jesus tell us in the crowd that he is all of these things. And I'm like, whoa. That best-selling novel that was pretty old, but like I have read, didn't get anything out of that. And like that point of view is very, very important as well. And it's one that, you know, I can't put myself into those shoes, but to understand that this blew their mind and all their concept is, is, is very, and for me, it makes this book super cool, super unique. Yeah. And, and I think I see that happen really specifically with Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, when it says, and he, when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf, etc. The lame will leap like a deer. And, and it's funny because Isaiah, to me, I think in this verse is being very metaphorical because earlier he was talking about how like the words of the scroll like for people who they have ears but they can't read it and they or they can't hear it and they have eyes but they can't read it and stuff like that but then when john comes up to jesus yeah john yeah. the baptist comes you up to just jesus maybe that i was like this yes. is another one of those like <laughs> moments yeah. yes this is what jesus quotes to him is john's like hey are, go ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the guy? And this is the specific verse that Jesus quotes. And it's funny because he's doing it literally in his time. And, and I think the reason that he's doing it literally, I think we said, I've said this before, but I think God does literally the things that he does spiritually so that we know what he's doing spiritually is real and it's really happening. And, and so I think when Jesus quotes this, he's like, look, I'm opening the eyes of the blind. I'm, I'm opening the ears of the deaf literally mm-hmm. so that you know when i say isaiah 35 5 i mean that i'm also doing it yeah. metaphorically spiritually <laughs> and john the baptist is like dude he is the guy yeah yeah so i i think that's yeah i don't know that that was something that stuck out to me as important and prominent okay well let's go back let's go on to 36 37 38 39 which is all about hezekiah yeah yeah, um, you wanted to talk a lot about Hezekiah. So. Well, he's, he is a very compelling character. He is. Um, and then once again, the context, from what I understand, he's one, he's one of the very few good kings of Judah, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is kind of like his like rise and fall. But like I said, this is also in Kings. And maybe, like I know he's mentioned in Chronicles, so like... Why is, why, can you give me a refresher on, like, why is King Hezekiah so cool? And then, like, why, is, did Isaiah live during this time frame? I had a lot of questions just about, like, why use him here? I don't, I, the main question you ended with, I'm not sure. I I do think, you know, we talked about it having a double meaning, um, talking about a king to come that's a good king. And um, I think he is mentioned in other parts of the Bible. He's not, obviously he's not as prominent as David just because David was like lineage needed to be so important for God's story. But Hezekiah is like, I, I think he does something significant historically where he turns his people back to God. And like, it, it starts, you know, that's like what I, when I hear and see Hezekiah, you, you see him being a King that wants to go after God. And so it kind of, um, 
changes what you would see come after Hezekiah is my thought is that it's it's playing a narrative role in trying to tell us a story about um, God's people. Yep. Yeah. Well, and all that Hezekiah is a he's a boss. Yeah, and, and the reason he's a boss, it, uh, dude, I love this scene because it's all, it reminds me of 300 where the the messenger shows up and like gets kicked down into the oh, well, yeah, yeah. which which is not what Hezekiah does, but it, it's similar um, where this, this messenger shows up from Assyria and he is like the boldest of the bold, like says all the things... He is very blasphemous, yeah. and well, you know. And not only is he very blasphemous, but like it makes Hezekiah's faith in God that much more impressive because this other guy is like, "Do not trust in your God," and then Hezekiah does. You know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, and, and like the messenger, he actually uses a lot of really solid logic, and yes, like, that's what I'm yeah, I, I think going to what you were saying with Hezekiah's faith thing, I think there there is this place where short-term logic and and knowledge doesn't get outplayed by the long-term wisdom. And I think that's one thing that we're supposed to see here in Hezekiah is that what this Assyrian messenger saying is saying is all true. Um, but maybe except for one part, we're not totally sure. But like he is like, hey, are you going to trust in your God? Because that didn't fare well for all the other gods that we've already wrecked in-house. And then the one part where he's like, and what, you think we are not here on behalf of your God? We are. Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe God did. I mean, because God talks about that in other places where he does appoint Assyria for destruction um, of other people. So maybe he's even telling the truth there, or maybe he's, you know, indulging a little bit. But either way, Hezekiah knows that even if all that stuff is true, that the wisdom of what he knows of God from the stories is that if I return to him, if I repent, if I beg him for his relief, my God's a merciful God who will do it. And so what he does is he prays and then he talks to Isaiah. Isaiah gives him some information. And then an angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrian troops in the night. What? what? Lord of heaven's <laughs> armies, bro. What? What? That feels even the odds a bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I had a question about that. <laughs> that would, I mean, that seems like that seems interesting. That seems I, I can't. I, I feel most of the time the narrative is this small band of warriors, strengthened by God, killed hundred thousand Philistines, even though they were outnumbered ten to one. This is like an angel of the Lord. The destroyer or whatever goes and just like wipes out 185,000 troops. What? Yeah, and I think we were even earlier in Isaiah, this was alluded to, is that it started the fall of Assyria and the destruction of it. So yeah. This and is, so this is, this is how he's saying it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Crazy. And, you know, it could be an apocalypse sort of moment where Isaiah's peeling back the veil of some other thing that happened and telling us that it was actually the angel of the Lord, uh, you know, historically, historically perhaps, yeah. perhaps a two very hungry bears, you know, went into the Assyrian camp and, and wrecked house in there, you know, whatever. But, but yeah, I think, you know, what you were saying that what God shows in the Old Testament over and over again is that if the people go out and fight even in his name, 
but aren't doing it with his backing that like it's not successful that like the only thing that grants them success in battle is if the lord's the one who's doing the work um and and so yeah i think that um what this is showing is that uh, an army of 185,000 plus is no match for one faithful king in prayer and and i think that's like what isaiah is trying to pull out here um and that like the lord responds to his people who have faith in him in in just one person's faith one can like god can use that to do crazy crazy things mm-hmm. but then yeah <laughs> then he gets super sick hezekiah gets very sick which is yeah weird and random um isaiah's like yo Set your affairs in order, my translation says. Yep, you gonna die. Yeah. Uh, but then, then he doesn't die. I think it's a good note to us too that this probably, <laughs> when you're reading this narrative, it's not one day after the other. There's immense amount of time in between here. So, but anyway, yeah, he gets sick. He does. He gets sick. I loved um, Isaiah thirty-eight sixteen. Um, this is Hezekiah. Um, being all sick, I believe. His poem, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lord, your discipline is good, for it leads to life and health. You restore my life and allow me to live. Yes, this anguish was good for me, for you have rescued me from death and forgiven all my sins. For the dead cannot praise you. They cannot raise their voices in praise. Those who go down to the grave can no longer hope in your faithfulness. Only the living can praise you as I do today. Each generation tells of your faithfulness to the next. I, I just thought that was so good. Like he, Hezekiah is in this place where he is, he's sick, he's suffering, but he actually sees that as something that's like turning his attention to God and giving him this opportunity to praise him, knowing that like, even though he's sick, he's not dead yet. And, and he still has this opportunity to like praise the Lord in the midst of that, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, almost. I know, Chris, you're a big David guy. It almost makes me think of, like, David when his son is sick and then when his son dies, like, the difference is in his mood. You know, like, there there are there are those characters in the Bible that take terrible suffering and, like, actually use it to, to praise God. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we talk a lot about where our, where our current church fails, but this is something that I've seen um, really be a a huge witness um, is the ability of God's people to rejoice in suffering. Um, I've seen that recently. I've seen that definitely at hope. Um, And just, it's incredible to see with a relationship with God and faith in God and knowing who God is, um, you have the ability to take these horrible things or Jesus takes these horrible things and uses them for good. And yeah, I, it's incredible. I mean, what I, what Hezekiah is saying is amazing. Yeah, because, you know, he's saying, I was going to die and you saved me. And the benefit of saving me is that I get to praise you more. And that's just, I mean, that's what we all want to be. So then so I, Isaiah makes some ointment and heals him. Whether he knew how to do that the whole time, I don't know. Yeah. It's not super clear. He's a cleric in <laughs> D&D. Yes, and then... He's like, all right, I'll spend my action points. <laughs> yeah, and then Babylon rolls in. Now you have 300 in my mind. It's like Xerxes, and he like gives him a bunch of gold or something like that, sends him a message. 39 is so strange because, yeah, you just get that. And then 
Babylon shows up and Hezekiah is delighted with Babylon and shows them everything in his treasure houses, which Isaiah calls him out for that. And I'm glad he does because you're just like, what? You're just going to be like, (laughs) hey, foreign foreign army, come check out literally exactly how much treasure I have, which seems very stupid. It's like putting a sign on your front lawn that's like, I have this much cash in my house. (laughs) Yes. And then so Isaiah's like, dude, you're trying to wine and dine these foreigners. Like, what are you doing? You literally just were praised for not doing that. And so, like, why, like, your your kingdom's going to be taken, it's going to be given to the Babylon. And then the part that I cannot wrap yeah, my head around the is part. the very last verse. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message you have given me from the Lord is good. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my life. So the scene is this. So the scene is this. Isaiah's like, why did you do that? You know what's going to happen? Babylon's going to take everything you have. And the king's like, Good. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, you know what? I'm going to be dead soon. None of that matters. And it's like, what, dude? What are you doing? I, to me, this sounds like a king that's tired of war. And he's tired of fighting. And he's happy that he's going to be overtaken because then he's not going to have to resist these huge powers anymore. Which is not good. But I sympathize with that a lot, a lot more. Like, you know, he just he had just had to deal with Assyria, and then Babylon came, and then he's just like, I'm done. Like, this is how much money I have. Like, he's basically throwing up his hands and being like, All right, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I don't know. Here's a here's a deep cut. Have you guys seen John Carter? Oh man, a long time ago. It's great, great movie. It like it was like a box office bomb, but he's like he's like the king who has this daughter. And the enemy comes in, and he's like, I'm going to marry off my daughter to the enemy so that there will be peace. And his daughter's like, no, that's like the wrong thing to do. And he's like, there must be peace. She's like, even though these guys are like gutless bad guys? That's Hezekiah. He's like, you know, I kind of saw him in like a treacherous light. But Chris, I think your perspective is probably more accurate where he's like, you know what? If Babylon comes in, at least there's not war. Like my family's seen too much war. When like the long term is like, I just told you. To stay the course. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it is interesting to put that in historical perspective. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I think it just shows like that Hezekiah has a skewed version of what peace really means. Um, and that's, I think, another thing that Isaiah is theming throughout this is that peace is not just the absence of war but that there is a much deeper meaning to peace, which is like the ultimate eradication of evil and suffering um, that God will bring. And so for Hezekiah, like I, I think what you said, Chris is really good, like, because it actually is something that can be empathized with like, man, I just want the fighting to stop, man. I just want this, this time of turmoil to be over. I'll do anything for it. But, but I think what, the the way the reason perhaps that Isaiah puts these two stories back to back is to show us how flawed that that kind of view is that like that's just not a good look for peace like that it's not what peace is all about and like God just showed you that if you just like go to him in faith that he can eradicate 185,000 Assyrians in a single night like so I don't know why you're thinking that this is the peace that you want now yeah, I agree. I think almost like I'm just thinking of this now that we're 
going through it together. But I think his illness is almost its own battle too. Like he sees God's faithfulness in his first battle and then the illness comes and he should die and God's faithful to him. And yeah, but by 39, when Babylon comes, he's exhausted and, you know, he, he might know logically that God can save him again, but he's, he's, he chooses the, the cowardly route to say, you know, I don't want to fight anymore. Yeah. I do feel also when I, I asked the question before, like, why do they use Hezekiah here? I also think they use him, this narrative, to like set it the next, like I was just looking ahead, like basically 40 through the end is all about, you know, like a lot of prophecy, but it's, it's all about Babylon, like Babylon's the main bad guy. We've gone through all these various different time timelines, time frames, and like different uh, geographies. Now we're going to get, you know, very specific into like, if there is a bad guy, it's Babylon, but more so as I look to the end. Pretty, pretty prophetic in general about the, the future. Mm. Um, so yeah, th- this section, I felt like the last section was dry. This section was bomb. This is the, this is the money section. Yeah. 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 I wonder if there's something kind of poetic that, to be said here that like Judah's best king just like let the biggest, baddest bad guy of the Bible roll up and take, take over. over. Yeah. And set up all of the bad stuff. Like every bad, like when I think of, it, like Daniel's after this, right? You know? Right? Uh, like yeah. Bab- Babylon coming in, all the really bad yeah, stuff? I think so, yeah. I don't know timeline. But when I think of Babylon, I think of like all the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Daniel's, yeah, several books later, but he's after this and would be kind of set in that, at least beginning in Babylon, yeah. But yeah, when you look at Chronicles and it's like, these are the good kings and Hezekiah is one of the good kings. Yeah, his end set off the worst, like, imperialism, you could call it, period, that Jerusalem and Israel had experienced up until that point. And their whole history was was being taken over, <laughs> you know, up until that point. Well, that, that's kind of a sad way to end a pretty awesome episode. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. That's, a, that's the thing with these kings, man. Break my heart every time I read them. Yeah, well... Next next section or sections are about to get better. What are we going to do? It's 40 to 66. Do we want to do that whole section or do we want to chunk it up? I don't know. Um, let's talk about it. I, w- I want to look at it before I make a choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In three, 